Hello everyone and welcome back to Project Next. I'm Finn Blake and I'm bringing to light success stories to empower the next generation. Today's episode 7 and I'm talking to Tim Fung, the CEO and founder of Airtasker, one of Australia's most recognisable tech startups. In this episode, Tim reveals the backstory to discovering the idea for Airtasker, which came about following a couple of years in investment banking at Macquarie. Tim also gives some incredible insight into the struggles that he experienced as a founder of a startup. Although it hasn't necessarily been a smooth ride for Tim, his story definitely demonstrates the need for persistence in your own career. Airtasker has now listed on the ASX and is looking to dominate markets overseas. If you're looking to explore a career in tech, startups or business, then you need to hear Tim's story. As always, if you're a fan of this episode, don't forget to hit that five-star button and leave us a review below. Before we get into it, I'm super excited to announce that we're partnering with Hyper for this episode. Hyper is a global startup incubator that provides you with the safest way to launch your startup. At Hyper, they believe that every idea should have the best possible chance for success. Guiding founders to validate, build and grow their technology businesses from ideation to investment. Like Project Next, Hyper is super focused on the next generation. If you've got your own idea for a tech startup, don't hesitate to reach out to Sasha, Sam and the rest of the team at Hyper. You'll find everything you need right below in the description. I know we're all excited for this one, so let's get straight into it. So Tim Fung, the founder of Airtasker, the Australian marketplace for outsourcing everyday tasks. The company is now valued at $400 million after floating on the ASX. Uh, I can't wait to hear the backstory of this idea, Tim, because it is an awesome one. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me on Project Next. Thanks for having me, Finn. Uh, so, Tim, I'd love to take a bit of a deep dive into um, you know, your childhood and what your motivations were growing up. Uh, did you always want to sort of work in startups and did you always envision starting your own business? Yeah, I actually don't think I had as, uh, too much of a, of a plan when I was uh, growing up. I was always sort of interested in solving problems and um, you know, trying things in a different way and I think that um, in general, I didn't really like to accept things just the, for the for the way that they were. Um, but I don't think I ever kind of envisioned um, starting a company or anything like that. Um, it was more just like doing stuff. Um, yep. And so, yeah, I had a pretty regular sort of um, education. You know, go, went to uni and did a um, a commerce degree, so that was sort of um, good, sort of you know, generalist uh, kind of a degree and approach. And then. Um, and then, you know, that, that, you know, via a bunch of serendipitous things led to starting a startup. Awesome. Yeah. So I was, I was actually going to touch on um, your experience at uni. So you get stuck in your commerce degree at UNSW. And um, so tell me about what you were thinking at that stage in terms of what you saw yourself doing long term. So actually, I think that's a, it's a great um, sort of observation because um, when I was um, going, transitioning into uni, I sort of had the, um, the the book in front of me of all the different courses that you could do. And, and actually, my initial choice was actually going to be industrial design because um, I thought that would be interesting to, to get across, you know, how things are built and, and you know, have the opportunity to, uh, to make products and things like that. Um, and I guess my parents kind of said, oh, you know, like looking at um, the number of jobs that you can get um, in industrial design in Australia, that looks like it's, it's really hard. So maybe consider something 
uh, more general. And so um, that's why I ended up into, um, into commerce. But I don't think there was any planning or anything um, broader than that at that stage. Yeah. And so what was the decision? Like, why did you end up making the decision to go into commerce ultimately instead of industrial design? I know you mentioned that there was a little bit of a push from your parents, but do you ever think, you know, what if? Um, no, I tend to think that, you know, I probably would have ended up back in the same spot uh, no matter no matter what, um, because I don't think my commerce degree really necessarily, um, you know, led me directly to, to where I am. Um, I think uni was just like another great sort of life um, experience. Um, but yeah, actually, the reason why I ended up in commerce is because there was a, a degree that they had at the time called tourism and hospitality management um, and marketing. And so I actually, you know, that sounded really appealing to me because I was like, oh, tourism, that's like going on holidays <laughs> and vacations and, you know, sort of sucked into that uh, glamour. Uh, so that's sort of like why I went in, in that direction. Um, Thankfully, the degree that we had was um, the, the the degree that I ended up pursuing was also a generalist uh, marketing degree um, as well, and so that was that was valuable. So, um, in terms of you know people that are going th- uh, that are finishing up high school at the moment and deciding what they want to do um, in their university degrees and are probably having a little bit of trouble in making that decision, um, would the advice be to just go with the gut because you're going to end up where you will be anyway, like like in your situation? I think that it, it does depend on like what kind of career that you're um, that you're moving uh, forward to. Um, in Australia, I think there is quite a lot of dependency between like university degree and and what jobs are open to you. Uh, for example, I think if you do want to go into something like law or investment banking or or uh, one of these kind of quite specialist things, and I, I do think it starts um, you know um, pretty early on, like going down that path if you want to be successful. <laughs> Um, which I don't necessarily think is a great thing, actually. I think it's really tough to make that kind of decision when you're 17 or 18, but I do think that that's how it still kind of rolls um, in Australia, um, and which is kind of different to, to the US, where I think you do do more generalist degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, if you're thinking about doing something like, you know, wanting to start a company or, um, um, you know, be involved in, in business in general, then I think it doesn't really matter so much because you don't really have, like, these institutions like, you know, Goldman Sachs or, or Mallison's lawyers or something, which are deciding, you know, what the requirements are. Um, and in that sense, from a very generalist sense, I think that there's not too much pressure. Um, you know, I studied tourism and hospitality um, in university and, and, you know, I'm doing something completely different now. Yep, gotcha. And so, Tim, going back to your story um, specifically, is there anything you wish you had have done a little bit differently at while you were at uni? Um, and, you know, if you could tell the university student team one thing what would it be it's a great it's a great thought i think um you know if i look at it from a um from the perspective of like starting a company and 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 business and things like that i would definitely say that uni would be a great time to do that in terms of the um the capacity uh that you have and i guess usually the um the sort of um, lack of commitments and stuff that you have, you know, in life in terms of, um, you know, whether it's family or mortgages or, or things like that. So I think from that sense, it's a really great opportunity. And, you know, when I reflect back on it, I was at uni for four, for four years and I had, you know, I, I could have I've started a company then. That would have been a great opportunity. Um, coming up from another perspective, like a life perspective, once you start a company, it's often like all on. And like for me uh, at Airtasker, it has been 
you know, almost a 10 year journey. And it's felt like being, you know, running a marathon for, for 10 years almost. So <laughs> um, that's been pretty intense. And so I think that you've got to be pretty passionate um, and find it really, really something that you want to do before you go and commit yourself to that uh, kind of thing. And, and for me, Airtasker, the opportunity is so enormous that I'm, you know, I'm thrilled. I'm passionate about getting up every day to try and solve this problem of like creating jobs and income uh, for for people, and it's an interesting problem to be solving. Um, but I do kind of like reflect on some of these entrepreneurs who start out when they're, you know, seventeen or eighteen, and you know, um, have they had that opportunity to just chill and experience life um, before a company? Yep, gotcha. Now, before you did actually jump into Airtasker, you had um, a bit of a stint at Macquarie. You, you, you cut your teeth at Macquarie as an analyst. And um, so I'd love to hear about, you, you touched on the institutions and Goldman Sachs and those, those types of places. Um, what did you actually get out of this experience that held you in good stead for um, being an entrepreneur? So first of all, I think that um, if I kind of like uh, reflect on my um, you know, experience from a career tra- trajectory perspective, I pretty much like started in, you know, the big uh, company environment and then sort of like worked my way down um, to smaller and smaller um, uh, companies. And um, when I reflect on uh, what I learned at Macquarie, it was really, um, they had a really high performance culture. And I, I probably took it for granted a little bit when I was, a, when I was an analyst uh, there. Um, you kind of just assume, oh, you know, like, yeah, you've got this great office, you've got like manager training, you've got people who understand the strategy and the vision of the company that's getting communicated really clearly. Um, People don't make mistakes on basic stuff, you know, like how to set up meetings, how to send emails, um, all of that IT infrastructure, all of this stuff, you kind of just take for granted as an analyst. But actually, when you you go and, and work in a startup, you start realizing like, holy crap, someone had to like design and implement all of that with incredible intention. And so now when I look back at my days in Macquarie, I think it was incredible training ground uh, to learn from people um, who really ambitious, uh, really high performance, um, and um, also learn about like how you create and infuse a culture into those people to keep them all uh, driving in, in the right direction. So mm-hmm. um, I think that it was a great experience and I'd really encourage people you know, obviously, if you have an idea and you're super passionate about it, for sure, go chase it. Um, but if that's not the case, I would actually think that it's a great um, opportunity to cut your teeth um, in, in places where people have sort of been on the journey and, and figured a few things out before you go and, and try and do it yourself. Yeah. Tim, I was actually going to ask you, um, what would the advice be to, you know, young uni students that are about to finish and they're kind of grappling with the decision as to whether to jump into um, you know, the corporate environment or, you know, even join an early stage startup. Um, do you think there's merits to both? And obviously you've done both. Um, so having the benefit of hindsight, which one would you choose at this stage of our journeys? I think that um, I would choose to go somewhere where I'm prioritizing learning um, outside of uni. Um, and I don't necessarily think that, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, go work for a big company or a, or a small company, but my like prioritization of like what I would go for would be a place where I can learn the kinds of skills that I want um, in, in the long term. And I think that um, early stage startups are often not a great place uh, to do that. Um, early stage startups are often, you know, founders are kind of like, this needs to happen, needs to happen tomorrow. And so it's often about um, either bringing in generalists who are just going to sort of hack things together. Um, that, that's one 
archetype of, of what our founders are looking for in that early stage environment, or it's extremely experienced people who have done this before and are just going to roll it out and um, with absolute respect, don't have time to train people or like coach or any of those things. It's like we're playing, we're playing the A game now. It just needs to be A game like straight away. And I think that environment is not always conducive to being great for like grads and, and people who are looking to, um, to level up their experience. And so, Tim, going back to your story again, um, you lasted almost five years at Macquarie, which is quite impressive given the workload and the hours and the work-life balance and everything. Um, what was the moment that you realized that you needed to leave? So, actually, um, I was watching a lot of the show Entourage uh, at the time, <laughs> and, um, and I was kind of like, um, Ari Gold's got a really good job. Like, that would be really cool to do, uh, to do what he uh, does. Um, and I'm also like personally really interested in, um, in motorsports and in particular like Formula One. And so at the time I was actually like looking after um, this um, uh, kid who was Mark Webber's um, third cousin from, from, uh, from Queanbeyan and who was also like a national champion in, in, in go-karting. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to go and like learn about how this whole world uh, kind of works. And so I actually made this like color brochure. Um, about myself. It's completely ostentatious. It's pretty disgraceful now, actually, when I think about it. Um, anyway, I made this I made this brochure and I sent it out um, to probably about 10 or 15 talent agencies across uh, Australia. Um, and the only person, well, two people returned my call. One was like, no. Uh, the other one was like, all right, come in and, and we'll have a chat. Um, and thankfully, that was actually like the, the biggest agency in Australia, Chic, uh, Chic Management. Um, looks after a bunch of uh, Victoria's Secret models, but also um, quite entrepreneurial in the sense that they've branched out from models to bloggers and chefs and celebrities and uh, film production and stuff like that. Um, so um, they just simply returned my uh, my email. Uh, I went in and I met those folks, and it was just something that um, was an opportunity that was um, was really really awesome. I actually didn't get paid. I I offered to work for them uh, for free. Um, uh, but I just kind of had this, um, inkling that if you're working and surrounding yourself with like really top notch, uh, people, uh, whether they're creatives or technical or whatever that is, um, great opportunities uh, are going to come from that. And, and that turned out to be the case. And so 2012 rolls around and the idea for Airtasker becomes a bit of a reality. Tell me about the, um, inspiration for the idea behind Airtasker. Yeah, so I was moving apartments, and um, one of my friends has a truck that he uses to do deliveries for uh, for his small business. So he makes chicken, frozen chicken nuggets and chicken chippies and stuff. Delicious products, yeah. by the way. Herman's <laughs> Dutch Croquettes is the name of the business. Shout um, out to them. Yeah, his name is not Herman, and he's not Dutch. So, um, yeah, I think it's just a branding thing that's a bit old now. But anyway, nice. um, awesome products. But Basically, I asked him, like, hey, you got this truck, come and help me move. And I think that's a really common, um, like, a common thing that people will ask, you know. Oh, you got a drill, can you come and help me do this? You got a truck, can you help me move? Um, so he came and helped me move all of uh, my stuff. And that just got us thinking, it's like, isn't it strange that we do actually, like, I would ask you to help me move. When you're totally busy with your job, you have, you know, you've got lots of stuff to do. And I'm asking you on the weekend to come and help me move. Like, that's just like a strange Sort of interaction and so we kind of like we're sitting around there thinking like why does this happen and what we've realized is just that there's such a high degree of friction to go and um to go and find someone to help you out with these things and that's kind of crazy because if you think about like buying physical things like products it's so seamless you know you go to ebay or amazon just like yeah i need a fridge bang I, i'm gonna buy a fridge i need 
a hat. I'm going to go buy a hat. But when it comes to like, I need someone to help me like move some boxes. It's like, oh my gosh, freak out. Like <laughs> this is going to be so hard. And then people start asking questions like, oh, is this person a stranger? Are they going to break all my things? Are they insured? How am I going to find them? This is just going to be so much trouble. And, um, and so that was really the genesis uh, for Airtasker. Um, but but I would say that over time, our thinking did evolve. And actually, um, uh, even though we started out with this kind of like thesis of like making e-commerce for local services are simpler and easier, we actually realized that the impact that we were having on our um, on our service providers, on our taskers, uh, was actually even more profound. And, and so uh, we've actually um, anchored our business uh, even more so now around uh, job creation and the opportunity to create income uh, for people, um, as well as just creating like an awesome experience for, for local services. Yeah, of course. And so Tim, I often, um, particularly after a couple of beers, will go and throw out a few business ideas to all my mates and they'll tell me a million reasons as to why they're not feasible and why it won't work. Uh, did it feel like one of these little ideas to you at the start and what made you really think that it was going to work? So first of all, um, I absolutely empathize with that sort of situation and yep. it is really interesting about how you um you know you sort of overcome that um that kind of uh, friction and, and confidence and conviction and stuff like that um but yeah i the i um i'm that person as well you know have a have a have a glass of wine and then you yep. know hey i've got the best idea ever wouldn't this be awesome um <laughs> there's probably like a whole bunch that sort of like you wake up the next morning you're like nah it's a crap idea <laughs> <laughs> that's um, usually the case bunch, yeah, yeah. Then there's a um, a bunch where you know you you talk to your friends and they just absolutely pan it, and you know that kind of sits in a a separate bucket. And I'd say most of my ideas probably fall into into that bucket. Um, I must say that with Airtasker, when I did present it to people, um, one of my my roommate at the time was working superannuation, um, really incredibly smart and talented um, person, but very very conservative about you know like making financial bets and stuff. And um, this was the first idea where he was like, that's actually pretty good. Like, that's actually something that, that, that you know, has, has merit. Um, and so that was, um, yeah, that was a, a good little bit of signaling to, um, to move ahead. Um, but I would say, like, you can expect with pretty much every idea, even after we'd launched Airtasker, there were people in, like, our family and friendship circle that were basically thinking, like, this guy's bonkers, like, that is never going to work and, and, and it's bad. And, and some people were just thinking it, other people just said it to me. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I think that this is the risk that you take as a, um, when you go and found a company. Um, and sometimes you're going to have egg on your face and be wrong. Um, but it takes risking that to actually go out and do something that, that might be interesting and might have a positive impact on, on society. Yeah, for sure. And so who were the biggest people at that time that you really had to convince? And did you feel as though you had to convince them to have the confidence in yourself to be able to make the idea work? And I suppose that's a, that's a question more generally for founders as well, who are trying to, um, you know, validate their idea. Well, I think the number one person that you need to convince is yourself. Um, and I think that that is, it's probably not great to go out there and expect to get validation from others um, mm -hmm. as, as a way of like gaining your own confidence. For me, uh, with Airtasker, the reason why I think um, I was able to, like we were able to like start this company and push through some really, really hard times, especially at the beginning, 
uh, was primarily because like to me the value equation of Airtasker is really really clear and simple and easy which is basically like there are definitely things that people need to get done that they cannot access someone who's got the skills to do that and there are people out there with all of these skills that they just need to share and we're like that value equation connecting those two you know um, sides of a marketplace together seems like an absolute no-brainer mm-hmm. and so really you know what we always said to ourselves was at least we know that someone's going to do this it may not be us there's risk in the fact that you know maybe someone else will, will, will do this before we do it but there's no doubt in our minds that one we're adding value and having a positive impact on society and community if we can do this and two both the problem and the solution exist out there um, and so that kind of just left you with that risk of like, yeah, can you do it? You know, are you the right people to go and do this? And, and to me, um, you know, of course you always have like wavering levels of confidence as to whether that is, uh, you, but that's very different to, um, that, that, um, that first problem that you need to get over, which is like, is what I'm doing fundamentally value creating and good for, for society. And I think that's the really critical one that you've got to be able to answer and that should come from you. And so, Tim, you mentioned the the difficult first 12 months or so, um, and you you would have had plenty of hard times. But tell me about those difficult um, periods in the early stages when you were trying to pitch to investors and trying to sell this idea to get funding. So I think um, for us, so maybe I can sort of just like reflect on the timeline. So starting a marketplace is quite unique. Um, If I had to kind of... Um, one possible dimension you can look at like starting a company is like what does the capital investment curve need to look at look like and I think on one end you've got um, things like services businesses or SaaS businesses even which is mostly like not too much capital upfront um, and you're gonna start generating revenue right away Um, and so actually you don't have to invest that much capital so for example if you're gonna start like a graphic design firm or an accounting firm you pretty much, you know, spin up your website, start gathering some clients. And from month one, it should be along the lines of, look, I have salaries of $5,000 to pay out and I can generate revenue of $7,000. So I need $2,000 to, you know, or so I'm going to make $2,000 out of that. Um, on the extreme other end, you've got things like social networks, which are basically like, I'm going to have to build this thing probably for years, investing into like, how do you build it? How do you get this thing going? Um, and there's probably zero revenue coming out of that because the first thing I just need to work out is like, how am I going to, you know, build a network and get, get some engagement. And so that kind of looks like, you know, you need to hire a hundred people, be figuring out these problems, um, and only years later getting revenue. And so that looks like you need tons of cash up front mm-hmm. and marketplaces are not dissimilar to that. You kind of have to do a lot of work up front and get very little on day one, but if you get it working, then on the you know the scaling side of that, it's a great it's a great business model because um, you don't have to keep scaling uh, those costs. Um, so with Airtasker, um, you know, like I said, we were quite on that side of things. We had to raise money uh, early on. Um, I don't think it was just one year that it would have been a struggle. Um, I think really the first what I have discovered, and I'm coining this as a thing. Um, basically, three months after you launch a product. You're basically running on adrenaline and you're like, hell yeah, everything that you're doing is awesome. Like, it's kind of like, if we move from like 50 email signups to 80 email signups, holy crap, that's like 60% growth, sweet, <laughs> like we're charging, right? 
And you kind of get these hits for like three months or so generally. You know, yeah. hey, we've launched a new version of the product. Um, you know, we've got the first email with a customer telling us that they love what we're building, this kind of stuff, right? Then about three months, um, you kind of get into it and you're like, all right, to break even, I'd actually have to have like a million email signups. And like, I don't need one customer. I probably need about 50,000 to, you know, break even or something on this thing. And I've seen like a lot of founders and entrepreneurs, it's like you just hit a wall. It's like, oh my gosh, like that just kind of hits you in one go. And it, it is, that is the hard bit to get through, I think. It's from that kind of point of three months into probably it's two years where you're kind of like, oh my God, we're, only, we're still only getting like 80, 100 e emails a day. We need 50,000. Holy crap, it's going to take ages. And so for us, that probably lasted three years, four years before we could kind of step back and go, oh, looks like we actually did create something. That's good. Um, that probably continued on for a while. Um, and I think that, you know, even once you, you, you do build something which objectively has value in it, you know, whether it's you IPO'd it or you exited it or you are building good revenues or something, I think most founders probably always have that thing in the back of their head just going like, it's not good enough. Like I'm mm -hmm. still not, I haven't done it yet. And um, I think that even, you know, you talk to some of the most successful founders, whether, you know, it's the guys from Atlassian or Canva or something like that. Um, I'm pretty sure they're still in that position. They're not sitting back kind of going like, oh, awesome, look at what we built. We're so good. Uh, I think they're most likely sitting there going like, how are we going to go to the next level? Like, this is really, it's still terrifying. You know, we have to get to the next level. Like, we are at a billion dollars of revenue. How are we going to get to five? Because everyone's expecting us to do five. And the expectations just keep uh, growing. So I don't think you ever get to a stage where like, I'm confident. I know exactly what I'm doing. All we've got to do now is sit back and watch it grow. Um, it's always active. And and just to piggyback off that, um, something I've been harping on about in my previous episodes is the concept of a win and a learn. You either have a win, you don't have a loss, you've got, you've got to learn. Um, what do you see as some of the biggest learning moments um, in those first couple of years where you'd had this realization? And was there any particular moment where you were like, damn, this, this might not work? Um, so first of all, I think... Um, I think that um, when you talk about winning and learning, you know, that ratio is probably along the lines of like 80% of things not working. Um, and I think that's depending on what kind of industry uh, that you're in. You know, if you're really pioneering an industry, it's probably even higher than that, right? Like it's, it's probably like most things you do will not work. Everything's an experiment. Give it a crack and, and, and hope. Um, so for us, I think that ratio was uh, fairly high. So there's a hell of a lot of learning uh, that was done uh, during that phase. You know, if I have to think about it, I think one of the things that perhaps we could have learned earlier uh, would have been learning how to learn. Um, mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like learning how to um, reflect on, you know, t having the time to be able to like reflect on some of the decisions that you've made and like what made that decision good, what made it bad and, and try to iterate on that. And I think that uh, there is this thing that people talk about now, like decision journals, um, where it's kind of like, basically document, you know, here's the information I have right now. Here's the decision I'm going to make off that. And then let's review whether that was a good idea, you know, once that decision results, you know, um, uh, come through. And um, it's, it's sometimes hard to like decouple that because sometimes really great um, results come from really crappy decisions. And sometimes yep. really great uh, decisions result in, you know, um, uh, crappy results as well. So it, it, it's, um, I think what, if I had to reflect on it, the number one learning that I would have had over that period is get good at learning early on. 
I like it. I like it. And so during those early stages, um, they say you get married to a startup and you don't really have any uh, life outside of work. How were you managing the work-life balance? I suppose you would have been a little bit used to it because of Macquarie, but were you able to spend any time, you know, watching motorsport or um, doing the things that you loved? I think it's different for different kinds of people. Um, so what I tend to be is I would describe myself on a daily basis as being like a, a sprinter um, in that I would I like to have structure and sort of like sprint during that period and then and then pause. And so... I'm along the lines of, um, you know, I would start work at, you know, around eight or something and I want to wrap up by seven or eight at night and do something else for a couple of hours and go to sleep and do it again. Um, and so I like to create some boundaries, like having an office, I think is a great um, boundary uh, to draw. I think having hours and sticking to those hours, even though no one's going to tell you to stick to those hours. I think, you know, just having that in your head, um, I think are other good examples. So it's like comp- compartmentalizing. Um, that said, I'd say in the early years, yeah, it is pretty much close to 24-7 because even in that two or three hours that you have that you might have earmarked to yourself, you're still getting phone calls, emails, something's on fire and you've just got to um, uh, solve it. Um, and that's kind of why I was saying like it's not necessarily something that you would necessarily want to do during uni and like during a time where you can um, you know, hang out with friends and just be like sort of like chill. Um mm-hmm. Because it's no matter how much you've got your stuff together, um, I think you know it ain't chill for the first, you know, at least the first year. But for me, probably even longer than that. Airtasker lists on the ASX at the start of 2021. Uh, tell me about the decision to list and what went into that process. So in 2019, um, Airtasker decided that we needed to be, we really needed to prove out um, that we were a sustainable uh, company. So. In 2019, um, early early part of that year, we were burning about $2 million a month, which I think is like, um, if you put it into the context of Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and these companies that are you know burning through billions of dollars a year, it doesn't sound like that much money, $2 million a month. But as an individual founder, it's pretty, it's pretty full on, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, like $2 million a month, that's like 70 grand a day. <laughs> uh, actually it's probably more like a hundred grand a day and you're like oh geez like that, that that's full on and so we decided that we were going to approve um, and not just say that we could become a profitable company but actually go do it so we spent the next um we actually had mapped out a plan the plan was that it was going to take about two years to do that <laughs> which everyone was of various levels of excited about um, but it turned out that it only took us about seven months when we really put our um, when it really put our minds to it to go from a two million dollar burn rate to to operating cash flow positive, um, and so that kind of took us into 2020, and um, and then COVID uh, hit, and boy were we happy about the decision that we'd made because we we're like oh my gosh imagine if we were still burning truckloads of money it's just going to be tough, yeah, um, and uh, it turned out though that COVID was actually quite an accelerant to our company uh, in the macro perspective. So it was disruptive in that lockdowns themselves caused a depression in our marketplace. Um, But actually what it ended up doing is demonstrating how flexible um, and adaptive our platform was, i.e. people could start requesting different kinds of services, taskers could connect with people and still be able to like maintain an income during this challenging period. And so actually our long-term trajectory accelerated. And so at the end of the year, we're like, 
hey, we want to do this, like, not just in Australia, but really double down into the US and to the UK where there are no, there's no one doing what we're doing. Um, and so we assessed all the different ways that we could, like, access capital in, like, an agile uh, way. And um, being public seemed like a really great way to be able to do that because um, when you're public, it's much easier and faster to be able to, to raise uh, capital because effectively you've done all this hard work up front to tell, you know, to, to go through, you know, we're, we're legit, we're audited, you can believe all of our, our numbers, uh, we're transparent about the way we do things. And of course, you know, investors have liquidity and so easy in and easy um, out which makes raising money um, a lot, um, a lot uh, simpler. Um, so that um, incentive combined with the fact that we really wanted for our taskers and our employees to own part of Airtasker and, you know, be able to realize some, uh, some value out of all the work that they'd put in in the early years. Uh, mm -hmm. That was the reason for going public. And um, so far the ride has been like really, really enjoyable and fun. And I think a lot of the, um, you know, uh, myths about uh, going public, which go around in, in founder circles, are not. Um, I, I don't think they're really um, 100% valid. Yeah, because I was going to say, you know, I think about, um, you know, companies like Canva and Safety Culture and all these big um, startup players in Australia, none of them have gone public. So was there any hesitancy from your point of view or anyone internally um, that maybe this wasn't the way to go? Um, no, actually, we had uh, um, internally we had full alignment um, that this was a, an awesome direction to go. And look, I think that there's it, every company is completely different. Like, I think if you look at something like uh, Canva or Safety Culture, um, they're like a large proportion of their customer base is actually in the US, um, which actually that's kind of more important than like where is their office. Mm -hmm. And so, in some sense, like Canva and Safety Culture are like US companies effectively. Yeah. Um, and I think that um, from that perspective, you, um, the methods which you raise capital are completely different. So um, uh, I think those companies, you know, have uh, these big US growth equity firms and stuff like that. I think if you're an Australian company, that's very like your funding options are completely uh, different to that. Um, so there are benefits in many ways because people love a local uh, business, um, but there are also things that make it harder, um, such as not having access to some of those US growth equity uh, funds. Um, and so, yeah, different options and, and I think different uh, course to go down. And so IPO day, um, it would have been a pretty awesome occasion for you, a bit of a recognition of all your hard work and effort. Um, tell me about the emotions of that day, Tim. Oh, look, I think, um, you know, in some sense, it's really interesting because as a, as a founder, I think you're often looking at like, what's the impact that I'm delivering to users, to customers, to, um, to society. And, and so like really doing the IPO is not like, it's not a massive milestone in some sense, you know, it's like, okay, cool. Like some of our investors can like trade the shares and like, um, employees obviously are going to get a, a benefit out of this. It's fantastic. But you know, it's another day uh, in the office. And so, my initial thought was like, oh, let's just treat it like another day. You know, we'll go to the ASX, ring the bell, and then we'll go back to work and, and do our thing. Um, <laughs> but actually, my um, um, my mum and my chairman and a bunch of other uh, people kind of pulled me aside. They're like, hey, this is a big thing. You know, if you're not going to smell the coffee on that day, then like, when are you going to ever do it? Like, what milestone does call for actually recognizing what you've done and also what all the people um, who have come along the journey uh, have also achieved? And so we did, um, we did actually end up um, revising our position on that. We ended up like taking a day, um, a day out of the office 
uh, and then having a party um, at night, which was pretty, um, which is pretty off the off the rails, which is pretty cool. Um, and um, I think that it was really important to to recognize um, people's work and to not pass up life milestones uh, like that. So it definitely did feel like um, a, a great achievement. I was really pleased with it. Is that something that you learned? Because you touched earlier on, um, you know, you used the example of Canva, you know, those co-founders are always looking where's the next opportunity and don't really, as you said, smell the coffee. So was that something that you wanted to kind of change tack on and, and really celebrate those little wins? Oh, look, I'm not sure. Like, um, you know, I think um, I think Cliff and Mel know how to have a bit of fun and I'm sure, um, I'm sure Luke does as well. Yeah. So I, I have no idea like how they uh, have fun or, or they celebrate. Um, but um, I do think it is important to, to celebrate is what I would say. And it's a key part, not just for yourself, but also for the people around you um, to create those moments. Because if you don't create those moments, then I think life is just going to pass you by. And sure, you might make a bunch of money and stuff like that, but that's not really what we're here to do. Like everyone's here to have a positive impact on other people uh, in, in, in the community and in society and, of course, to, to enjoy their own lives as well. So I think um, you don't want to be too robotic about it. Pretty important to experience it. And on that topic, um, just to wrap up, Tim, I'd love to um, ask you. So I, I mentioned earlier the win or the learn, and you've told me about the learn, but what is the biggest win? What do you see as um, a particular moment in your uh, journey or in Airtasker's journey that you go, wow, that was, that was really epic? So there have been like so many like small things, and I'd say there hasn't been any kind of like silver bullet um, kind of win, but... I think in terms of like impact and, and feeling like, you know, we've really done something that's positive for the community. I think one of the stories that I would reflect on is um, one of our taskers actually told us that she was on um, Centrelink, like welfare for about 20 years. Um, and she, she spoke to us about how Airtasker actually helped her to be able to like break that inertia, you know, cause it was like smaller bite-sized chunks uh, of work. And that actually helped her to like build up her confidence. And um, as she's built up her confidence and built up her income, she's actually now been able to be like working full time uh, on on Airtasker and is actually completely out of that cycle of like, um, you know, of of welfare and 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 having to report to Centrelink. And so I, I would say that like really in terms of wins, that's kind of like that's the stuff that really goes like, oh, that's awesome. Like that's the dopamine hit. So. Um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say I'd probably go for that one. Nice one. All right, Tim Fung, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing all uh, the backstory to Airtasker and you know the different ideas that were bubbling away in your head at the time. So uh, thank you so much for taking the time and really looking forward to continuing to watch Airtasker grow. Awesome. Thanks so much, Finn.